Hello and thank you very much for joining me for episode 180 of the Game Pit Podcast, a podcast about modern tabletop gaming and a proud member of the Dice Tower Podcast Network. Head to dicetower.com for every single board gaming podcast you could ever wish to listen to, including ours. So this time round, I am going to take you through a pit fight episode. And in a pit fight episode, we take games that have something in common and we rate them against each other. In this case, we're going to be doing all two player games. You probably know that because you've probably seen the episode title. So thank you very much for joining me on this journey. I'm going to take you through seven two player games. I'm going to start with the lowest rated. I'll give them all a rating out of 100 as we've started doing. However, as I always say, do listen to what's being said because the rating is very subjective. It's what I like. And maybe there's something in the comments that you will find that will sway you either more positively or more negatively towards these games. So... Uh, again, as happens sometimes, the podcast has been a bit patchy for a few months. One of the reasons is I've been out of the country three times, <laughs> going to different places, which I'm in a very lucky position to be able to do so. But with that traveling, obviously, it's not so easy to get together bigger groups of players. But two player games I have been getting played. So I thought I'd drill in a bit on those. So I'm going to start with the game I've rated lowest and move my way through. And it is very pertinent that I mention that I rate this game the lowest because I think this is probably the lowest rating I've ever given a game. So we'll whisk through this quickly. And uh, it's basically a fit of peak. It's a bit, a bit of a tantrum about why I put this so lowly rated. It's it's Golems from 2020. Francesco testing the Thunder Griff games. You know anything about Thunder Griff games? You know they do the Matchbox collection of games. Bonus listener points. If you remember that I backed Matchbox games set two. And I already reviewed AO, E-I-Y-O, the uh, single-player samurai-themed game. And I quite like that. But... It did have a bit of a dodgy rule book, but it was playable and I could work out what was going on and I had to look on BG to get a couple of clarifications. Okay, Golems. Got it out in a hotel in Turkey. Got the rule book out, read the rule book and then had to guess at, I'm going to say 100% of every single rule within the game. I had cards, I had crystals, I had no rules. It's what it, apart, oh, okay, it did tell me it was some kind of set collection. So, you know, using the many years of reading rule books, I went through it and went, okay, I'm going to take a guess as to how this plays. So I guessed, and we played it, and it was dull, but it was a thing. And then I was like, this can't be right. So when I got back, very loath to, because I'm already annoyed with Thundergriff Games about their rule books, I looked up the newer rule book. Because they did a reprint of rule books for all the five games in this Matchbox collection too. And even after reading that, I wasn't 100% clear on how the game should be played. But I did work out that it was completely different to what I had inferred from the not rules they had in the original rule book. And I wasn't that close really to how they wanted the game played. So the rule book is so bad, you couldn't even guess near to what the intention of the designer was as to how the game was supposed to be played. So in effect, it is unplayable as sold. Now, we could say, Ronan, play it with a new rulebook and tell us how the game plays. But I'm going to say no, because you've had enough passes to Undergriff games and you've done this too often. I've got three more of these Matchbox 2 games to get through. 
I'm begging that the rule books are better than this, but because the blue crystally gemmy things that you get with it are quite nice and quite cool, I've given this a four out of 100. If those components had been worse, it might have been a one out of 100. Thundergriff, not okay to publish games in this date. I'm not having it anymore from you. That was a bad start. But every game from now on is worth consideration, although obviously, in my opinion, the last couple of the real highlights of this whole set. And then this one kind of sits a bit lower than we've got a middle three. So the one that... Mm, it just has a lot of promise but didn't quite deliver was Wolfierian, which is kind of hard to say and spell because it's got a Y and an I in the middle so it's very hard to find on Board Game Geek it's from 2019 Federico Tini Alessandro Veracchi from Tabula Games it's a fancy themed deck builder in which each player is a powerful house within this fantasy world and you're at war with each other and you're coming towards the end of the war and each of you have got three cities left and your goal is either to destroy the other player's three cities by building up attack values or to persuade Volfirian, the dragon, to fly over and sit within their kingdom and if they can't persuade them to leave then you win because the dragons basically destroyed their city i think he's like the the overall massive power of the land or something there's definitely mythology behind this all it's set within the land of other games how deeply you want to get into that is entirely down to you but they're setting these two houses against each other okay start with the same deck of 10 cards each and you play out five cards and that's going to give you values in three different currencies there's attack values. These attack values can be used to visit the lair of Volfirium where he has artifacts and you can steal the artifacts basically. I don't know why he's in doing that, but there you go. And what they do is when they go through your deck and you play them out next time round, they become income for you. So they sit out in front of you and every round you're going to get that income again in these three currencies. Or once you've got better cards going and you build yourself up and you build up the way that you get the currencies in this case attack you may have enough to attack a city and the cities have got three different defense values all you have to do is generate enough attack to defeat the defense value of a city and it becomes destroyed so that's what attack is for there's knowledge within the game as well and what that lets you do is now if you've got loads and loads which obviously is a late game thing you can persuade Volfirian to move across and sit in someone else's land and that's like I said the kind of the default win if you can do that there is the ability to kill Volfirian within the game by the way with a massive attack and take them completely out of the game if you haven't chased knowledge within your deck and the other person's got a knowledge edge on you and you think oh they might be getting close to doing that you really would have need to have gone for attack in order to make that huge attack and, and what it also does is shut down all the artifacts there's no new ones can be taken you kind of destroy the whole layer or whatever it is so that whole mechanism is out of the game knocking that down a notch before you've got the ability you will build up knowledge and what you can do with that is you can shut down the other person's artifacts and you can sort of twist them and say right those are no longer giving you income until they untwist them and they do that by having their own knowledge so there's kind of a, a, a sub game there in which if you get ahead in the knowledge income you can shut down their income which will obviously have a knock-on effect and they're gonna have to find some way to go around that but it's possible because the third currency is the one which you're actually buying cards with so if you're generating lots of that if they're shutting down your artifacts well you can buy better cards so there's ways of thinking around each other with these three different currencies and they interact in, in not very subtle ways, but they do interact. The new cards that you buy, you can buy sort of the generic unit cards that you put out and play and they give you a certain amount of something. 
Also, cards have got other effects on them in that there's sacrifice powers on cards. So there might be a case where you're buying a card to use it, or maybe never use it, but it's the sacrifice power at the bottom that you want to make big strikes. So like when you're going for Volfiri and you're going for a city, if you're trying to do the persuasion, you might throw a card away completely out of the game and use its sacrifice power. So you're considering that when you're considering what card to buy. But as well as the cards that go in your deck and churn around, there's also defenders you can buy. They're units, they will give you an income and something, and they'll give you a defense value. And each city has got a place for one defender to be put in. And you're going to need to do that fairly early because it's not that hard to generate enough attack to take out an undefended city. The defense values aren't that high. So you are looking for them early. The thing is, you can get defenders that will give you more currency, but their defense value will be lower. So you're leaving that city more vulnerable. And that's a decision you have to make. There's also buildings, which you can buy. And again, each city has got a slot for one building. Those buildings, again, will give you some sort of effect and income. And possibly, defenders generally have sacrifice values. I can't remember if the buildings do or not. It's possible. But what you do get is special powers on cars, which will directly attack buildings or attack defenders. So that if someone is building up in you know, a load in their cities and looking impregnable... There are cards that work their way around that and have got their special effects. Sometimes these special effects are triggered off the fact there are three minor houses in the game and what that corresponds to is three colours of cards. And some cards will only have secondary and tertiary effects if certain combinations of those colours have been played in this hand or are already in play via your defenders or buildings. So you're looking to create combos as well and create... The ability to have, say, a red card in play in one of your cities and then get cards that trigger off having a red card in play. There's plenty to think about. There's plenty of combos. There's plenty of those different strategies whereby if I'm going all out attack and you get the edge of knowledge, like I say, well, I need to take all three and out of the game. And I will also need to start worrying now because your income will be higher than mine. Uh, yeah, you're working it all around the place. It all sounds good. And it's promising. And when I first played, I was like, oh, there's a lot to think about here. But I haven't really been able to properly develop my strategy and what I want to do. Unfortunately, that never went away because the whole game feels too rushed and there's no time to make decisions. So, for example, there's a market of five cards available. When I'm talking about there's different sorts of units you can use as defense and some of them are good at income and some are good at defending. I'm not really making a choice. Because there are so few defenders available, usually, I'm taking whatever comes up and getting any old bit of defense I can in my weakest city because I need to, because it's going to get blown up within a few rounds. It does not take long for this game to accelerate, especially when those artifacts in play and you get a constant income. People become very powerful very, very quickly. And yeah, that that's kind of <laughs> a nice thing, but it leaves me feeling a little bit unfulfilled in Volfirian. Because I feel like they maybe could have had more faith in what they had created and the system they had created and maybe given it a bit more breathing room by just sort of slowing that whole economy down a little bit and allowing players to properly build combos rather than being forced to just grab whatever cards they can right now because everything is a headlong rush. Now, this is where I say this is a very personal thing. I would like it to be a slightly longer game with slightly more thinking space. I'm sure there's going to be people listening to it going, no, that sounds perfect. Because we can play, you, know, you can play this in half an hour, which is how long roughly it takes. And I can try something. If it didn't work, it doesn't matter. Because I can just shuffle it up and go again next time. 
And I'm going to sound like a hypocrite later on when I talk about a game that's got a very similar setup of trying to attack three bases and you can get combos and sometimes they work, sometimes they don't. The difference I'll say here is that in Volfurion, I'm dealing with those three currencies and they have multiple ways of using them. And there's a lot of admin for each turn. I'm looking for combos. I'm trying to make things work. And I'm being made to think about possibilities which never actually come to fruition or not enough of them come to fruition for me to feel like it was worth all the effort I went into to create those possibilities. I don't have enough goes through my deck to be able to go, oh, it worked three times, so therefore it was worth thinking about. It worked once or it didn't work because everything's done. I'm sounding harsh here. And I've given Volfurion a score of 53. But it was really close to being something very good. And that, I think, needs to be kept in your consideration. And if you like the sound of it, certainly give it a go. There is merit here. It just didn't tick all of my personal boxes. So that's Volfurion. The game that comes in number five in this pit fight, I can feel myself getting tied off by some people I know here, is a, is a favourite of certain section of gamers, and I, there's good reasons why. It's the Field of the Cloth of Gold, 2020, designed by Amabel Holland, coming from Holland Spiel. The Field of the Cloth of Gold is all about, in 1520, Henry VIII of England, Francis I of France, two huge historical figures in their respective countries and in Europe. They met for a big old flag-waving show in a... A village, a field outside of Calais, the Pays de Calais, which was part of England at the time, but is now in France. And yeah, it's on the it's on the continental mainland of Europe, right? And it was all about whose flagpole was bigger than whose, because it was all about oh, hey, you're my you're my brother, you're my cousin, we're both kings. That means that you know we're we're, we're special. And here, here's here's a gift to show you how awesome I am. And then no, 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 here's a better gift to show how awesome. I am. No, no, I'm incredibly generous and rich. Have another gift from me. And this went on for three weeks of competitions, which the kings gave huge prizes away of lands and money and whatever it might be, and feasts in which they were trying to outdo each other with the dishes that they would provide for each other. And everyone was put in these, these tents of cloth of gold, which is incredibly expensive, <laughs> hence the field of the cloth of gold. And it was just ridiculous. It was a massive preening show of, you know, like I say, my flagpole's bigger than your flagpole. How does this work out? Well, in the field of cloth of gold, there are seven spaces available and you've got two markers. And you're going to take one of your markers, you're going to move it to an empty space and you're going to, do the action of where that space is, but there is a tile, an offering under six of these spaces. One of them's the dragon, which basically is a blocker, so it's a slightly different way of playing. For most of them, it's you take a tile and you hand it over to your opponent and say, there you go, there's your gift. You're awesome, but really I'm saying I'm awesome. And then you trigger the action of that space. So the scoring that you trigger is going to be in the different colours of these tiles that you can collect. And there's piety, feast, joust, cloth of gold... Or you can score for having a combo of all of them. So when you score piety, you check and see how many white tiles you have in front of you, and you score one point each, and then they discard. When you do feasts, what you want to do is have exactly three blue tiles in front of you, because that's the most efficient way of scoring. If you have one or two, that's great. Once you get above three, they're just wasted. They don't score any more points than having three. So sometimes you're trying to sort of burden the other player with too many, although 
six points for scoring for three tiles is a decent whack of points. So it's kind of a balance here. And every time you're giving the other player one of these gifts, you're giving them an opportunity to score. It's how efficiently they can score. When there's joust, basically everyone has their red tiles in play and they all get thrown away and you score points for them. But what you're trying to really do is stop people having combos because there's one space where you score for the, you're having sets of all the colours, but you don't throw them away. And it's the only time you score sort of all of those red, white and blue ones, the, the feast, the piety and the joust, and you don't throw them away. So getting on there while you've got a combo is really handy because the other player is trying to force you to score these points before you can get a chance to get to a combo. Throughout the whole thing also, you're collecting these cloth of gold tiles and whoever chooses that space, as long as they have more cloth of gold than the other player, gets to score them. And at the end of the game, there's bonus scoring for cloth of gold. But the fewer points you have, the more those cloth of gold tiles are worth to you. So you can kind of try and slow ball it and collect cloth of gold. However, as the other player, you can see that and say, well, they've got loads. I need to give them points to stop them scoring more points at the end. But then it could be really hard to win when you get yourself in that situation. So like, don't get behind. Also, not all the tiles are available to see because... At certain times, you can either choose it or it happens that you get to take tiles and keep them secret in your hand. And you only show them when you choose the action to score them. So you're not working with perfect information. It feels like a small game and it feels like a really cool little idea that should be a five or ten pound game that you kind of throw down, you play it quickly, and you go, oh yeah, that was cool. That was, that was you know, we had to think about that. It was... It's been made up into sort of a bigger game with the quirky Hollandspiel components. Whenever you buy a Hollandspiel game, do not expect great state-of-the-art components. That's not the way it rolls. They are focused on game design. And Amabel herself is focused on creating the feel of a historic event, more usually than not. And this is supposed to create the feel within a Euro of this whole thing of, I'm giving you something through gritted teeth. I don't really want to give it to you because it's going to help you out, but I have to give you something because this is what this whole game is about. And that's done very well, but it really is. Hollandspiel games are in a niche market, and I know the people who love them are going to be like, why is this only fifth in your list, you madman? Well, it's a pleasant aversion, but no game I've played of Field of Cloth of Gold is memorable. I can't really tell you, oh yeah, do you remember that time Ellie did something amazing? I've never done anything amazing and I'm bad at it. Or Rachel did this or Sean did that. It's not possible because it feels quite similar every game. And you can do slightly smart things, but it's very ephemeral and it goes and then you're back to, okay. And again, maybe I'm sounding too harsh on this. It's fun to play, just not that memorable, but... The best thing about the whole thing, and I don't mean this as an insult, is the rule book. The rule book is written in an older style of English while being very funny and teaching you all the rules and being easy to refer to, but referring to all things as if like well, maybe an old chronicler or a bard might speak or something like that. It Just go read the rule book on the Hollandspiel website or BG, wherever you can find it. It's not very long, but it will make you laugh and you will know how to play the game by the end of it. So the score I give the Field of the Cloth of Gold is 60 out of 100. I had fun with it, but I don't need to ever go back to it. But if it gets put on the table, somebody says, do you want to play it? I'll happily play it and I will remember how to play because it's very smooth and there's not many rules to it and it all makes sense and it's easy to play. There you go. The Field of the Cloth of Gold. Number four is the newest game on this list. 
It's So You've Been Eaten from 2022, designed by Scott Arms, published by Luda Creations. And it's the my least played of the games on this. So I've only played this twice. All the rest, apart from Golems, as discussed, tried to play that. Let's forget about it. It's not really a game. Shouldn't really be on the list. But I had to mention it because I was so annoyed with it. Anyway, so you've been, I've only played it twice. So this is more of a, a first impressions. And it has got the ability to go up and down. More up, I'd say, than down. But anyway, I've plonked it at number four on this list for now. So you've been eating caused a bit of a... A little funny stir, I think, a bit of novelty stir when it was announced because it's a zero player to two player game, yeah, zero player, whatever. Because there's AIs for both, uh, <laughs> for both sides of it. Well, the two sides of it are there's a giant space beast, which is one player. We're going to talk about a two player version, and the other person is a miner who has been gone into the guts basically of the beast because there are crystals within there which are valuable the mine has been sent in by a shoddy mining corporation who's not going to trigger their jetpack until they've collected enough crystals or until they get shot out the other end and see whether it's worth doing so or not whether they've collected it enough yeah there's that theme of you're being treated badly by a corporation is very reminiscent to uh, a far away to me a two-player game i reviewed last time last year or year before loved it much rougher production, but very, very funny. And the theme is carried through more, I would say, in that one. I just like to mention Far Away, remind people to play it. It's a really good game. Okay, so you've been eaten. What are you trying to do? There's a track of gut cards, and they are moving from the beast player to the minor player, although as if the miner's coming towards the end of the beast, I guess. On these cards, there are going to be crystals. There's eight different types of crystals. There's two of each crystal within the game. There's equipment of miners that have tried to harvest from this beast previously and been unsuccessful but also there's bacteria of four different colors the miner takes actions by rolling three dice and then they've got a little action board which they can upgrade over the course of the game but all the actions allow them to do is to manipulate that track of cards by either collecting cards collecting the crystals if they collect one of each of the eight different colors it's an instant win for them by collecting the equipment that's available each of the equipments, there's five different types. Uh, they're one-off use. You can use them. You could collect the same type again further down if you want to. And they'll give you special powers, again, to help you manipulate things and move things around. And also, they're considering what colour of bacteria will end up nearest them when they finish doing their three actions. Because that colour bacteria will attack them. Now, the beast is providing the cars to the track. And they're doing this in patterns of color of bacteria because by putting in different patterns, they're able to claim special powers during the game. If And if they get enough special powers, they get an instant win. Or Also, those are points for them. So collecting the crystals is points for the miner for if you ever get through the deck. But uh, collecting these special powers are points for the beast. Also, what's points for the beast and also how their instant win is. There are these four different colors of bacteria. If the same color bacteria attacks the miner, ends up being the end card in the track four times in a, at the end of rounds, then that's an instant win. But also just getting these bacteria up and having them attack two or three times is going to score you points if you make it all the way through the deck. So in putting down these cards on the track, you're looking at the colors of bacteria and, and looking at how you're attacking and making it difficult for the miner to make good decisions. And that's what it's all about. It's about the miner really making all the decisions and the cognitive load is on the miner but the miner that's got the least control because they are at the mercy of the gut cards that the beast is playing down 
and they're very much at the mercy of the dice that they roll. And if they do not roll the dice that they need to grab the cards that they really need, then it's going to be hard work for them. Now, you can manipulate and you can use your equipment powers and you become better at being the miner, but it is still the majority of gameplay with the lack of control is the miner. And as the beast, it's quite chill and it feels easier. And you're kind of sitting there going, yeah, I'll just put out this card, this card, this card, and uh, oh, this is my special power. <laughs> Not that much to it. It's possible, and uh, I don't know, because I haven't played this solo, that solo as the miner against the beast AI might be the best way to play the game. It might suit that better than playing two-player because of this, you're watching the miner. And actually, I was feeling quite bad for the miner because they were having to work really hard, and I really wasn't. And it kind of felt easier to win on points for me as well. So there you go. But having said that, it was fun. There was stuff going on. You're making decisions. There's variety. There's different powers that come out. You're trying to manipulate things in different ways. So it was a positive experience. And I enjoyed So You've Been Eaten. Possibility I might mention it again as a solo game more than a two-player game further down the line. But that was something I had to learn through play. So there you go. I've given it a 62 out of 100 for So You've Been Eaten. Game number three in the list is a reprint, a reworking, a retheming, and a slight addition of a couple of rules to the 2009 original Dragonheart. And this is, well, it depends if it's Italian or French, Opale, Italian, Opal, it's in English because we're basics, it's Opal, Opal. It's uh, O-P-A-L-E. 2019, it's from the original design of Dragonheart, really good dawn. This one is from Runes Editions. Theme, theme, theme. Yes, it's something aquatic and there's, there's still dragons from Dragonheart and it, it really makes absolutely no sense at all. It's you're playing cards down to take cards. <laughs> there are the changes they've made. I'll just go through quickly. If you did play Dragonheart, there's a couple of expansions which mix things up a bit and the points are varied on, on the same types of cards. It, it creates a little bit of uppy-downy when you're creating opportunities. So let's, to the people who haven't played it, because I've played Dragonheart, I logged 21 plays of it, but I didn't log them all. So I've played Dragonheart a lot, which is why I wanted to play Apal. I'm going to go Apal. Okay, good. Two, two identical decks. And within those decks, there are various units. And there's a board. And you draw a hand of five, usually five cards. And you're going to choose all of one unit. And you're going to put that on the board. Now, the units are fixed where they must go on the board. And where they go creates different opportunities because they may become a target to be taken by whichever player can take them according to the game conditions and every card has got a number of points that it's worth in it apart from one set which is basically the round ticker over which you only play if you want to get rid of them or you just want the game to get through because there's three sets of those get played and the game's over that's how it finishes it's player driven okay <laughs> what the hell am i talking about you put a card down there are a couple of places whereby that card does nothing and they just sit there and they accumulate and they accumulate until someone puts other cards down into a position which takes from that position. And whenever someone does that, and it might be a case that they have to put one card down, it might be a case that they have to get two cards down. If you need more than one card, it's whoever puts the last card down that position just takes from the target area. They go into a score pile and all the points that are on there become theirs. Now I was saying usually you have a hand of five cards because there's a dragon space, which when you take from there, it makes your hand size six. It's very powerful. However, these things switch around. And the key to the game is that 
you might take that space to become six hand, hand size six. I might then put a load of cards back into that target space, hoping you haven't got the right card to take them all and keep the size six hand, hand size of six, easy to say that. Do you get what I'm saying? So sometimes you're putting cards down just to take points available. Sometimes you're putting cards down, trying to set things up for yourself to take them. Sometimes you're just putting cards down to get rid of them. Like there's, there's one space you need four of the same. To have four of the same in your hand is very unlikely. So you're kind of like, well, if I've got one, I can put that down mostly safely. But if they've been holding on to three, not only do they put the three down, grab, score four cards, also now they can draw three new cards back into the hand, giving them many more options. Because you get stuck with cards you don't want to play because you're setting the other player up. But you have to keep the cards moving through your hands. Otherwise, like I say, you're very you're limited down to only one or two cards you can play and that becomes a, an awkward thing. Now the playing is very quick. It's cards down, do I take anything? No, draw back to five. Cards down, do I take anything? Yes, great. Draw back up to five or six. And that is the whole key to a pile is that it just clicks over and over and over it has a feel of like one of those games that you play with a deck of cards that like everyone in the family knows and they're just playing taking playing taking they're not necessarily i mean there might be a bit of chat that might be oh you put that down and that is also key to it like, oh no oh, i didn't think you'd have that oh no i can't believe i'd put that down to take it next turn and you've taken it or i'll put down these three valuable pearls because you'd spent a load of the cards that could take that and I've forgotten you could take it from this direction because sometimes there's like two directions you can take cards from and there's a little bit of chat of that but play is constantly flowing your hands are always moving cards are always down and up down and up down and up it's very easy to learn it's very easy to play it retains the charm of the original Dragonheart which I played so many times it's not a classic it's not great it's not amazing it's not going to blow your mind you're not going to sit there thinking about it but it is interesting and it's funny and you're making tactical decisions constantly. And if you get a bit of an edge, you might be driving to try and finish the game, hoping you draw the right cards and maybe you don't. But it's you're constantly making these small decisions with payoffs. It's almost got that, say, that app thing of constantly like, there you go, there you go, here's a few cards. You go, you end up with a big stack of scoring cards at the end that you have to sort out how many points you both scored. And you do get a feel of it's going better for someone or for someone else. In a pile, like I say, they created so that not all the cards got the same points on them, so that you might be more valuable pearls. If someone could take a couple of more valuable pearls, it's better than getting a load of one value ones and stuff like that. Well, it's just a little tweak. The expansions, like they bring a shell tag and stuff that you can play in order to sort of break up if you're getting too much of a pattern. Because I think that's what happened to Dragonheart for me. I used to play it at work and we play it and play it and play it and play it. And then we'd be like, okay, no more Dragonheart for a little while. <laughs> and this is just there to sort of if you're very familiar with the game, you'd see that it would shake it up a tiny bit and, and just bring that maybe one half a level extra of thinking into it, which was all it would really need. It's a rock solid game. It's got perfectly fine artwork in. It all works. It's easy to pick up. I like Apart as a two player game and I do recommend trying it. And it has got a very decent 68 out of 100 for me. And while the last four games have certainly had merit to them, I would say that the last two games of this collection, I mean, obviously, because I'm counting up to my favourites, but these last two are really fabulous two-player games that I would recommend if you get a chance to give them a play, at least try them. 
The one that I think is going to be more universally liked, funnily enough, is the one that I've put second. And it is called Jackal versus Hyde. It's from 2021. It was designed by Gianil, who is a Korean game designer. It comes from Mandu Games, again, a Korean company. It's a trick-taking game. One use Jackal and one use Hyde. And Jackal is trying to keep control of the situation. You're going to be playing over three hands. And what Jackal wants to do is, at the end of a hand, there will be 10 cards played. They want you to have won five each. And if they have that at the end of a whole hand, then the marker doesn't move from the Jackal space across to the Hyde space. What Hyde's trying to do is create disparity within that and trying to make it so that Hyde has won either way fewer or way more than Jackal. They don't care which, as long as there's some imbalance. Because any difference in the number of tricks you've won that marker moves across. And if it moves across a certain space, then Hyde becomes the first player because Jackal starts as the first player. And that gives you a slight edge in manipulation of the cards, which you'll see as I get to explain how you're going to play this and how the whole trick-taking works. But it's all about this key of Jackal keeping control, even numbers of wins, Hyde trying to mess it up. There are three suits, red, green, and purple. They come in strengths one to seven. The way that they are set out as trumps, there's no trumps, there's just a level of suits. And that's not set at the beginning of each hand of cards. The first card to be played, that color is now the weakest suit and will lose to any other color. The second color is the medium one and the third color that gets played within the hand becomes the strongest suit. However, you must follow a suit that when it's played, if you can. So that is a big part of manipulating, <laughs> looking at your hand of cards. Especially, again, as the Hyde player, we're trying to mess things up and going, hold on, what am I trying to do here? If I've got lots of reds, do I make them the weakest ones so that I'm making him win loads or make it the strongest one so that you get what I'm saying? It, it starts off interesting straight away from the first card played. However, even that set of strength of the suits, it's not as complicated as it sounds. There's just markers you put on the board and you just go, here's a green, here's a purple, purple stronger, right, purple wins. Another game, here's a green, here's a purple. Green stronger, right, green wins. There's a matter of number on them. So it kind of takes the numbers out sometimes, more often than not, actually. There's also four potion cards within the deck. And what their effect is, they have, so they have a value, but their effect is linked to what the card by the other player played is. Because the red, green, and purple potions all have different effects. They can reset the suit strengths so that in the middle of a hand, suddenly they're all wiped off the board and it's the next card to be played now becomes the weakest suit and so on. Or they can make the players exchange two cards where suddenly your plan that you were trying to do something has been mixed around and who wants that to happen? Is it looking even? Is it looking like, who knows? Or when you win this trick, you have to take an extra trick as well, which again, might be a good thing, might be a bad thing, depending upon timing, depending upon who's winning, depending upon where Jekyll is trying to get this to and where Hyde is trying to get this to. The beginning of the three hands, you've got to pass either one, two or three cards, depending upon what hand it is. And that also is quite revealing because the card you get given will give you an idea of what the other person is trying to do more for the Jackal player than the Hyde player. Because obviously if Hyde's given you strong cards, you're like, well, they're trying to lose all these tricks because they have to make the decision to win them all or lose them all or try to anyway. In the whole game, if Hyde gets it so that there is a six trick difference over those three hands, that's how they're going to win. Now, as Jackal, it's kind of not that hard to manipulate one or two of the hands to mostly go your way, so you're very close. The problem is you have to keep constant control because if you get one hand get out of 
out of you know your control and the other player gets something gets three gets it's only even numbers so soon he gets six tricks difference it's a bomb you're more than halfway across the board in one hand you're like now i'm really under the cosh and that feeling of having to constantly keep control feels very thematic to me and when you see things slip away it's like oh no no, it's going wrong it's going wrong you know from the whole story hide feels like you're being sneaky and it feels like you're constantly being frustrated in what you want to do and it can feel like jackal's one step ahead and you're trying to slip free but you're kind of being caged in by what Jackal's doing and the traps that they're setting. Again, to me, in like two Patriot thing, it feels thematic. If the way it plays, it feels like as Hyde, I'm trying to get beyond the, the realms of this control you're putting on me. I don't know. I do I really, really work for me. The production is very basic. The cards are not that attractive. There's a kind of really nice uh, two-faced figure if you like that actually marks where you're on the board. The board is basic, the tokens are basic. It's all functional but it's not going to blow you away. It's actually quite difficult to get hold of. I had heard people talking about it. It sounded interesting because I knew I was going away. I went to two-player games. I imported it from France. So if you're in the UK, if you look on Philibert, who are a very good French board game shop, they've got English language on the website. They send it across really quickly. I've, over the years, ordered many games for them and they've always arrived reasonably priced, no problems. It, it, Post-Brexit, everything, it's been grand. So... I do recommend using Philippe if you are looking to get hold of it. It's a brilliant dual game with, in a very small play space, both sides feel like they play very differently. And that's an amazing trick to pull off. And I strongly recommend Jackal versus Hyde. We've been playing it like crazy. It's given an 82 out of 100 for me, putting it in the top echelon of games. But... It didn't make the number one spot, so this must be head of a game, right? Well, I got to admit, this is this might be like personal bias, so but it's still a very good game and well worth playing. It is, it's been talked up all over the place. You know, if you follow games, you've probably heard of it. It's Radlands, twenty twenty one from Daniel Picnic and Roxley Games, post apocalypse, and each player controls a clan, fire for control of the area, and you're looking to destroy. You've heard this somewhere before in this episode. Each other's three bases. Okay, in this game, your bases, though, have got different powers and give you different amounts of starting hands. And what you do is you draft them, you get dealt, I think it's six, and you pick three off there. And that immediately sort of sets you off on how you might want to play. And they, their powers are different, and they will set you up. One of them examples is like a juggernaut that just slowly moves forward and then eats up the bases <laughs> that's opposite it, stuff like that. But it's more vulnerable because it's moving forward. You can't defend it. This will make more sense when I explain the rules. But the, the bases come with different powers. You're straight away into making a decision, but there are starter ones for you for your first game or two so you know you're not completely thrown in the whole game is about you draw one card each round you get three water which is the resource of the game and then you're looking to do stuff if you've already got cards in play you can take the actions on the cards they usually cost you water and each action can be taken of each card once if you've got cards in hand you're looking to play them they will usually cost you water and the different cards will be Characters which you put into play, which will go in columns in front of your bases to defend them. There's two spaces for a person in front of each base. If a base isn't defended, it's bad because the other person can just attack them. You can attack the first card in a column. Usually, there's ways around everything because all the cards have got special powers. None of them are befuddling or texturing or anything like that, but they do bend everything. But generally, you're trying to get people out with powers on them 
in front of your bases and people can be attacked by each other and you wonk them once if they attack a second time they die same with the bases if you attack it once it wonks take a second time it dies kill all three and you've won the game there are also event cards you play event cards will have a timing in which they happen it will be in zero one two or three of turns time and you put them on a little imaginary track next to you or if you've got the play matter real track i don't and you just count them down at the beginning of a turn in which they kick forward that event's going to happen and they can be very powerful but they can be very expensive for your water of a turn and the more powerful ones tend to take longer to develop and come through so the other player can see it coming and can plan for it which is a very nice touch the other thing you can do is all cards have got a discard ability. Now, that is not something that's just throw away and rubbish and you don't want to use it. They can be really powerful. Those discards is how you can maybe get to four or five water on a turn, which will allow you to play the biggest cards and set yourself up. Or they might be a heal. You can't use a character once it's been injured once, but you could throw a card away to heal it. Suddenly it's back in play and now you can use its power. And it can be very situational and timing in which... Maybe the other player discounted that card because they'd injured it and you've got no heal powers in front of you. Bang, I just happened to have one in my hand. I can heal it. Look, it's back in play. Boom, there you go. It did the thing you didn't want it to do. And you're constantly worried about the other player's powers and yet trying to develop a plan for how to use your own powers, knowing that all the while along they can be taken out by in-game effects and nothing is permanent. And in the end, the game is not going to bog down. Three of these bases are going to get destroyed and it's not going to take forever. It does sound a lot like Volfurian. It's not deck building though. It's all about just having a very limited number of cards in your hand and working out how to use them. It feels more like Race for the Galaxy to me in that way with huge differences. You're not choosing phases. It hasn't got that difficulty to it. You're not having to read the other player in terms of that. However, you are having to read what cards they've got in play and what their intentions might be much more than in Race for the Galaxy. So that would be where that interaction comes from. The cards are nowhere near as complicated as Race for the Galaxy. Their effects are quite simple. They're explained. You're not having to go through loads of icons. So I was wary about making the comparison, and you always should be over a game as good as that game and as loved as that game, but it still gives me that feel. It's not the same game. It's not derivative of it. It's not these are the same mechanisms. I just feel like I'm trying to make the best of the cards I've got and put together some sort of a strategy and yet the next card I draw will open up different possibilities where I might go, do you know what? Instead of doing that, I'll discard that card I was planning to play for that power which will let me set this up to lose that power which will then give me the edge at this point. It gives me a feel of the post-apocalypse like you're kind of junking things and you're scraping things together and there's never quite enough water and oh, is this the time to go for it? There's a raid card which you can put in play via effects which will count down. So you can kind of see this raid coming and you're frantically like, oh, well, I now have to prepare for this raid. What can I do to just throw out maybe quick, cheap, like uh, if you put a card face down, it's just called a punk and you don't know what card it is. It's just basically a hit point. It's just meat shields. So you're like, quick, just throw the meat shields out. Let the raid kill them and keep these valuable ones. And it feels like you're being ruthless. But wouldn't you have to be ruthless if you're running a post-politic? apocalyptic camp wasn't tina turner ruthless everyone come on it's a joy to play but it is right in my wheelhouse it is exactly where i love playing games which is why i have rated it so highly i have given radlands an 87 out of 100 i love playing it i can see it being a favorite i can see it coming out again and again and again i think the only holder to that is how sick of it the people who play two player games become of it because i just absolutely i'm having a, a 
ton, a ton, a ton of fun with it. It's been a big hit. It's been reprinted. It's going again. It deserves all that praise from me. So my top two-player game of this pit fight is Radlands by Daniel Picnic and Roxley Games. Well, thank you very much for joining me on this journey through two-player gaming. I hope you enjoyed it. If you want to join in the conversation, follow us on social media, on Twitter and Instagram. Ellie's taking over with Natalie doing our Instagram, so there should be more action on there because I was terrible at it. I'm not regular on Instagram, but I am on Twitter quite often. And you can join our Board Game Geek Guild. It's there. Look for it up. It's the Game Pit. And if you want to send us an email, it's thegamepitpodcast at gmail.com. And as I said at the beginning, we are members of the Dice Tower Network. Head to dicetower.com and there's loads and loads of gaming goodness over there. Thank you for joining me. And hopefully next time around, you might hear a familiar voice back in the pit. Music by E. Oh.